welcome to another episode of Beside the Author with me, Renika, your host and narrator. I deep dive into the books alongside the actual author in an in-depth study so you as current or future readers can get a deeper understanding of the author's intended message. In this season, we're examining a book called The Hidden Tree by Valton Brown. The Hidden Tree is a book that examines societal philosophies, ideas and inventions to expose and discuss the historical, out-of-sight root system that is fueling the largest global transition since the Industrial Revolution. A round of applause, please, for Valton Brown. Hello, Valton. Hello again, Renika. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to be back. Good to be back. So last week, we discussed Chapter 3, The Root System. We introduced and defined new concepts into the historical narrative like Darwinism and social Darwinism. And we discussed how the mindset of the era was all-embracing and ended our episode exploring the hallmarks of forgotten history with a particular focus on the Jewish community. And this week, today, we will be going through Chapter 4, The Evangelist. So if you've got the book, please all turn to Chapter 4, and that is going to be our focus of discussion. Okay, so over to you again, Valton, for a brief overview. And when we are opening this chapter for the first time, could you briefly describe to readers what they will uncover? Okay, so we've um, begun to look at the transition from one century to another. We've looked at how we can identify that transition. Now we are beginning to discuss the kind of people that were taking forward the message that had been developed previously. A message that was, I suppose, fragmented in some ways, you know, because there were different people looking at different things from evolution and all the other stuff that goes into that. But now we are talking about the, I call them the evangelists. So they are the ones that are um, determined to change the way that the world thinks. And this is where this particular chapter plays an important part. Yeah. So when I was reading through this chapter, I would have to say this is one of the hardest ones to format for an episode yeah. because it's very different from the other chapters and you've kind of already touched on the fact that it's more people focused so it's got a biographical mm. elements to it and so what was your thought process behind this chapter and for it being placed at this point in the book it was a natural development um as we talked about in the previous podcast the the soil the seed all of these images are important to paint a foundational picture before we get to the people that took the message forward. So really this had to be part of the whole dialogue because now we're seeing how the philosophy begins to be applied and how it starts to roll out into the real experience of people. Yeah. So you've called it the evangelists mm. and when the readers read this chapter, if you've already read the chapter, you'll adjust behind why they were called the evangelists and not just extra people involved in the yeah. movement yeah um let me just read an excerpt first before i ask you the question so you put here on page 48 however we cannot continue our exploration of this complex subject without first pausing to review some of the foundational members who can only be described as the evangelist preachers and apostles of this movement these are ministers who are baptized and ordained to establish this new religion 
not by a holy God or through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, I hasten to add, but through the intervention of another kind of spirit. And so here we're starting to see an introduction of a new religion. Mm -hmm. Before, when we were looking at Darwinism, social Darwinism, they were almost like standalone concepts, would you say, and ideologies. Yeah, I'd probably say that they sprung out of the same root. That's why I use um, the seed of evolution or Darwinism as the focal point at that early stage. But they, the, the philosophy starts to grow out of that and um, becomes quite a complex route. It's important to then follow the strands. So we've planted the seed. We know what the ground is. We know what the language that was developed from all of that to do with slavery and the lives that, that were taken as a result of it. Now we're talking about the um, the preachers of the message. So I didn't necessarily begin by thinking of them in this way, but as I read about the first character and then began to look at others, because there are loads of them. So this chapter doesn't cover, it doesn't even scratch the surface really. It just picks out some of the important people that most people would recognize. Um, but I consider them to be the false apostles, the false prophets, the false preachers. Bearing in mind, this is a philosophy. This is a teaching, and it's supposed to, to guide the world in how to become spiritual and how to live out of this particular perspective of being spiritual. And um, every movement needs preachers. Every movement needs teachers. It's just inevitable. And here is a few. And would you say then that this movement, because you've related it to a religious system, does it have a particular name that you would have called this movement? Per se. I wouldn't give it a, a name. Uh, what I would say is that we often look at segments of this movement and we get drawn into it. So you're going to hear about eugenics. Well, as soon as you mention eugenics, the, the knee-jerk reaction is to talk about race and then to begin to delve into eugenics and the, the horrible things that were done through it, which they were, and how it affected society and you know, you can really dig deep into that, but the book is more than that. So if we're talking about a philosophy, it uses these vehicles to get the message across. This is where it becomes much more interesting and important to know, because then we see that its strands are much, much bigger and they are global. And so we get drawn into a conversation about something that's out, not, not just about race or eugenics. It's much wider than that. It's more than the theory of evolution becomes much bigger and much much broader okay so what you're saying was from when i was asking you about darwinism or social darwinism or if this religion has a name a uh, religious system has a name you're saying it's not about what it's called it's about the it collective yes, it's of what it is. all of these elements that is driving it forward so i guess then when you had put in acts seven chapter 17 verse 22 um, to 23 you've got here the scripture that says men of Athens I perceive that in all things you are very religious for as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown god and it's almost like this religious system is to an unknown god and I know this scripture was used for a different okay purpose but... well, well let me sort of mm. um, explain that when Paul went to Athens, I'm not going to give everything away from the chapter, but when he went to Athens and he lighted upon that altar that had the inscription to the unknown God, he was in an area where, where there were philosophers. I think it mentions Stoics and, and others. So there was this school 
of intelligentsia that existed in his time that we still build on, which is the interesting part. So they went through a version of uh, the pandemic and um, just to be on the safe side, they built altars to all the different gods they could think of just in case they might have missed the most important one that caused the whole thing to be brought on Athens. So Paul lights upon this altar to the unknown God, and I use it in the book to emphasize the point that we, as they, spend a lot of time looking for something new, but we miss the most important point, which is the unknown God is not all of these deities that you're worshipping, but it's the one that you forgot about, who created all things. That's, that's partly why it's there. Okay, so basically I'd taken that slightly out of context, which yeah. is, is good to <laughs> good to know, because as always, it's about understanding the author's mm. intention and why you wrote what you did. So basically what you're saying here is that we're looking at an unnamed religious system where we're seeing the key tenets that are the visible elements of this system, which is whether Darwinism, social Darwinism, eugenics, and other concepts yeah. and ideologies that will come out later. Totally, and, and it's about connecting the dots between all of them. Uh, as I say, we, we can quite easily get drawn into eugenics and look at that as a whole subject, which is what we produce documentaries on and all sorts of videos. We can then go down the road of looking at race and all the atrocities done in that. Or we can flip over to slavery and we look at the history of slavery and who was affected, etc. So um, if you keep that pattern going, you could look at politics, health, medicine, and isolate them all from each other and spend the rest of your life talking about those specific areas. This is about connecting all of the dots so that we begin to see a tapestry from God's perspective. So we begin to understand what he's looking at and what our world looks like from his perspective. Okay, yeah. And with that, in this chapter then, so you've touched on five key evangelists. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, there was a lot of people that you could have probably have chosen. Why did you choose these five? These five stood out for me. There were three of them that actually coined a word or, or phrase, which in our day is literally the foundation of some of the ideas that we have. So it, it was key to have those words included in the person that coined them so that when we get to the more recent part of history, we can see how there's this development and so the reader doesn't have to take my word for it. They can follow that thread all the way through from those speakers right the way through to what's mentioned later in the book. And, and of course, in our own experience, we begin to see how those words factor in virtually every day. That's really interesting. So the five evangelists for our readers to get context, to get context is they were Francis Galton, Julian Sorrell Huxley, mm -hmm. Charles Davenport, Clarence Gamble and Margaret Higgins Sanger. Yeah. And in this episode today, we're going to be focusing on just three of them because of time, but also the core relevance to them later on sure. in the book, as you mentioned. Sure. So let's introduce our first evangelist. Drum roll, please. <laughs> it is Francis Galton. So quick fire segment, Galton. Name three words to summarize Francis Galton. Founder of eugenics. Perfect. But not bad. <laughs> Founder of eugenics. That's perfect. <laughs> okay. And then who was Francis Galton related to? Well, he was the cousin of Charles Darwin. And he was t totally taken in by his cousin's um, writings and 
you could just tell he was, it was like, oh, this is just an amazing discovery, you know? And um, so he literally immersed himself in what Charles Darwin had to say. That's really, because as well, um, if you were reading the chapter from last week, you will see that Francis Galton was mentioned briefly in that chapter when we were talking about Darwinism and social Darwinism. And okay, so why was it significant, this connection between Francis Galton and Darwin? Right, well, here we begin to see how Francis Galton's ideas, based on his cousin's ideas, takes the whole um, theory of evolution to another stage. Remember, we talked about how uh, the theory of evolution became uh, social Darwinism, so its principles were being applied to human beings. Well, Francis Galton felt that it didn't go far enough because why should we stop at the question, why care for the weak? Why shouldn't we take steps to improve the human race? And that's where the whole idea of eugenics then began to spring out of Charles Darwin's evolution um, ideas and Darwinism, whichever you want to call it. So Francis Galton became that springboard. So this seed now begins to grow the stems mm. and um, eugenics becomes a, um, a way of implementing some of the ideas that Francis Galton had. Hence the three words, founder of, of eugenics. eugenics. Yes. Okay. And so if he's a founder of eugenics, why is Francis Galton important to this new movement beyond being just the founder? Uh, well, the... The tree that I refer to, which is going to be featured later in the book, is actually the eugenics tree as a focal point of this philosophy. I did say that it didn't have a name, but we do identify its character throughout the pages of the book. So eugenics was foundational, really, because uh, had, had it stopped or had we stopped at Darwinism, then much of the programs and the influences that we see later that became global wouldn't have happened the way they did. Eugenics was now looking at the human race and going, okay, so we've already recognized that there has been an evolution and there are those that are still at the other end of being less intelligent, uh, a lower class unfit, as they like to use the word, and then there are those that are superior. So why not? encourage those that are at the top end to populate the world, to have more children. And um, why not find ways of reducing those at the bottom end of society? So eugenics became the vehicle for doing that. And it also legitimized again, even more firmly, this idea that there are differences in races that makes one more superior to the other. And it really began to embed itself in uh, society globally. Yeah, you mentioned in um, page 56 when you were talking about Francis Galton, you included uh, one of his articles called Eugenics, Its Definitions, Scope and Aims. And in that article, it says, Persistence in setting forth the national importance of eugenics. There are three stages to be passed through. Firstly, it must be made familiar as an academic question until its exact importance has been understood and accepted as a fact. Secondly, it must be recognised as a subject whose practical development deserves serious consideration. And thirdly, it must be introduced into the national conscience like a new religion. It has indeed strong claims to become an orthodox religious tenet of the future, for eugenics cooperate with the workings of nature 
by securing that humanity shall be represented by the fittest races. What nature does blindly, slowly and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly and kindly. Mm. And in that, you highlighted the line that said, thirdly, it must be introduced into the national conscience, like a new religion. Yeah, because that's what he believed. Uh, he, he's not the only one that used that kind of um, wording as well. It's really strange. Looking at these characters here under the evangelists, they they weren't just coming up with ideas that would, I suppose, give someone a better life. That's That really wasn't the undergirding motive, certainly not from what you can read from their own articles. They talk about this as though it is literally a religion. So I don't have to guess. I know it is, right? And then we have the, um, they have the eugenics catechisms, which outlines what eugenics is. A bit like the tenets of a church denomination. Mm. What do we believe? And that's what they did. And the more you read into it, you recognize they, these people want to change the world. They want to make sure, first of all, their nation isn't overrun by people they don't want or don't have to look after. And this is, as I say, a spillover from slavery, because think about this. When there were um, free slaves, suddenly there's this big question. Well, if all these slaves are free, what are we going to do with them? Oh, uh, and where are they going to live? If they're going to stay where we are, we've got a problem. you know. And so when you look back in history, you can see that when all of that was taking place, there were plans to send them to different places in the world or get rid of them somehow because they really feared what these free slaves would now do since slavery was verbally abolished. Yeah, it's really um, scary when you start to delve deeper on some of these characters and yeah. their thought process. The fact that I think what was um, scary but very interesting was how a lot of these thought processes were written down in a literature format so how you were saying about the tenets written down this is what we believe this is what we will execute yeah yeah they didn't hide it that's that was the thing i was shocked by i you know you think that um if you you were holding some strange ideas you wouldn't necessarily write it down for everyone else to read and go oh that guy's just he's lost it you certainly you would try and hide the information but this is why it's so important that our audience does some of their own homework because this book is literally just scratching the surface. There's a world of information that's out there for us to, to examine, but they do not hide it. And that tells you also about the mindset of the time when they were promoting these ideas. Uh, it sort of cements the fact that they weren't afraid of, of being attacked for, for their beliefs. And certainly I think the opposite was true. They were quite confident. And so policies legislation, even government was being uh, influenced by what these people had to say because they were in the positions of influence as well. And Francis Gotten, going back to him, so we've said that he's important to the movement because he was the founding father. He helped build and create eugenics, mm -hmm. which is a huge vehicle for many atrocities that have come uh, in history sure. and even some of our mindsets. Well, yeah, mindsets we see around us today. But what else would you say was Francis Galton's core beliefs? Because you've included some of his other writings and referenced them, like hereditary talent and character, uh, which was a comparing of race attributes. And then you've also included hereditary genius, uh, 
about like parents and mental attributes being passed on what will you say is Francis some of Francis Galton's core beliefs he didn't believe that the um the human race came from a place of a high status and fell so if you're a Christian and you believe in the God of the Bible and the account that the Bible gives us, you would say, well, in the beginning, we're the perfect human beings, but because of sin, the experience of humans gradually were degrading, and it required a savior, a messiah, to restore the broken covenant, but also to bring us back into right standing with God. So there would be a degradation. As far as Francis Galton was concerned, because of the theory of evolution, we started off as um, uncivilized animals, basically. And then we've been progressing upwards. And this is where it gets quite interesting because then that idea, that belief is totally opposite to the biblical worldview. Now, some may say that's okay, but I'm just pointing that out as a fact. So his, his beliefs were that we started off as a lower species and then we gradually began to um, increase to, to become higher. And those that didn't make it along the way, well, that's, the, uh, that's Darwinism. That's his theory. There's the proof. So for him, we should still be evolving. But why allow that to happen naturally? Let's, let's find means of doing it ourselves. And so this is where we get the, um, the ideas of sterilization, segregation, psychiatric hospitals, people who um, had children out of wedlock, they'd be locked up, but it became a whole machinery. But he had some really strange ideas and yet he was quite an intelligent man. He believed that we started off as a lower species and then we've gradually evolved into something, something more. But he believed also that we ought to remove the unfit. We should not allow that to uh, affect the, the perfect higher human race. Human race. Yeah, it's kind of very shocking in a way because sometimes we don't actually acknowledge that they were taking places in the UK. Yeah. Because we're very used to hearing a large portion of things happening in America. Yeah, absolutely. Things like that. And yet Francis Galton was from Birmingham. The Philosophical Society that was set up by a relative of Charles Darwin was in Derby, where um, Charles Darwin was married into the Wedgwood family. That was in a place called Mare, just outside of Stoke, Newcastle on the Lyme. These were people that were connected and they had influence. And you'll see that how this family really used that influence to the max to try and change the way that people were thinking and living. And to a degree, they were successful, sadly to say. Mm. So you've mentioned now, okay, we've looked at Francis Galton and I will say that there is a lot more information in the book. Um, and we've met our first very, very prominent evangelist, preacher, mm -hmm. founder. Um, but we're going to take a look at our second evangelist. And that second evangelist is Julian Sorrell Huxley. How would you characterize or introduce this evangelist? When I was reading about the other characters, they were a bit charismatic. They had something about them that you could go, yeah, that's Francis Galt, or that's Margaret Sanger. Julian Huxley just seemed to be a person that was there doing things. Yet, I know he had influence, you know, but it's partly because he was the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley, who was described as Darwin's bulldog. 
So he was given this name because he defended Charles Darwin and evolution. And he would do it vehemently. He wasn't afraid to defend the whole thing. Now, here we are, Thomas uh, Henry Huxley's grandson, now becoming an influencer. And, and that's something that comes out of this family, the Huxleys. You know, if you Google the Huxleys and you look at what they each did, you'll see, oh, hang, on, hang on a minute, they had a major influence on British society. So Huxley is the a very interesting character. He came up with the, the term or the word transhumanism. And that's one of the reasons I, I stuck with him as a character, because that word probably sounded a bit strange then, but now it's as though it, it's always been there. Yeah, as if know? it's a normal yeah. thing. It's a part of uh, blogs, YouTube conversations, discussions about technology in the future. It doesn't seem like it's in a strange place anymore. A bit like the language of slavery when it came into evolution. People weren't shocked by the language, which is its deception. It, the, the philosophy will launch new aspects or what seem to be new aspects when the environment is ready for it. And people aren't shocked. They just accept it because they've been prepared for it for a long time without knowing it. Yeah, because I wanted just to quickly find then the when the term was brought about. Mm. And it was in Julian Huxley's book, New Bottles for New Wine in 1957. Yeah. So we're now in the year 2023. Mm-hmm. And that term has been around a very long time. And for all those that are really into technology and to advancement of uh, people and uh, mind things, I don't know what to call it. My brain's gone a bit blank there, ironically. Um, <laughs> it's It seems like a modern 2000 phrase. Yeah, which is the thing, isn't it? I mean, the, the some of these words that they coined, m- most people don't even know where it came from, or I assume most people don't. Uh, transhumanism, it was part of the belief. And when you look at Julian Huxley, again, he doesn't hide what he's thinking. He doesn't hide the fact that to him, this is part of a religion. And uh, there are parts in the book where I take extracts from what he's written um, to try and make sure that the reader sees these are not my words or my assumptions. This is what he said. Um, he, he was quite an influential chap as well. Uh, became the uh, first director of uh, UNESCO, which is one of the subgroups of the United Nations. And I, I think I put in the book that it's about 17. Well, he, through that, laid out his policy quite clearly, very clearly. And he describes the the method by which the world could be re-educated and changed and so forth and so on. And on page 61, I summarize some of those points of how that's going to be done. And he talked about mass campaigns for education. You know, human values, uh, philosophy and the humanities, art, the social sciences, the media. This guy mapped it all out and he talked about this philosophy saying it's, it literally has to be treated as a religion around the world. I want to just briefly just pause before we get to um, his beliefs in that segment because I think that really needs to be focused on and I want to read an extract okay. around that as well because sure. 
it is very true that the him being first director general of UNESCO is a very pivotal point in this narrative that you're pulling out here. Gotcha. Um, I just want to read what you've put about, like as a summarizing statement of him on page 59. Um, so you said, from his credentials, we see a theme unfolding. And those credentials, the bullet points before that, again, just a bit more context, was you'd listed things like he was the president of the British Eugenics Society, the first president of the Humanist Society, first director general of UNESCO, and an evolutionary biologist, a founding member of the World Wildlife Fund, which is WWF, everybody who loves seeing the panda there, that is that group. Um, and he was knighted in 1958 and awarded the Last Car Foundation in the category of Planned Parenthood. And you say, from his credentials, we see a theme unfolding, a humanist who believes in eugenics and the evolutionary process of humanity, who wins an award in the category of Planned Parenthood, birth control, abortion, sterilization, is given the position of first director general of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization an international body that was responsible for educating the world. Is this a coincidence? By no means. Mm -hmm. So that was how you summarized him. Yeah. Um, because you can just see from that description, he was very influential. He sat in many influential different positions for very big organizations. Yeah. And that's, that's the signature of the Huxleys. But uh, for put them together, uh, Galton, Darwin, Huxley, the, the families powerhouses they, they were powerhouses yeah and they had the, the means by which to do what they wanted to do as well they had the connections they had the position in society to do what they were doing so Huxley doesn't um, doesn't hold anything back he very clearly just maps it out he's got uh, there's a booklet that I was able to acquire that talked about UNESCO and the different um, plans and how it was going to influence things and it's it's quite an incredible little read but then we fail to see that if this is, I know you, you'll come to this later, but if this is part of a bigger picture where there's a bigger organisation now, um, which UNESCO is a part of, has it changed? It's, it's in what we would call the developing countries. And uh, looking at what he was doing, I began to question why they would focus on some of these countries. And if you read his manual, his book, or his manifesto, whichever way you want to describe it, um, you you then begin to suspect there's something not quite right here, knowing that he's a humanist, eugenicist, and a number of other things as well. Let's go there then, okay. because I think we're at a good point to do so. Okay. Let me just read on page 60 um, an element that you took out from the direction of UNESCO, which was the book that you're, or pamphlet, I don't know which one it is. Um, yeah. That it's a booklet. A booklet, produced, yeah, yeah uh, that you were referencing in this chapter. So it says, at the moment, it is probable that the indirect effect of civilization is dysgenic instead of eugenic. And in any case, it seems likely that the dead weight of genetic stupidity, physical weakness, mental instability and disease proneness, which already exist in the human species, will prove too great a burden for real progress to be achieved. Thus, even though it is quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake so that much that now is unthinkable may at least become thinkable. And this is then where before you were 
listing mm. out some of how he believes he could make hearing and thinking about eugenic to cleanse society mm-hmm. of those that are the unfit yeah uh, is possible do you want to go into that now then Barton? yeah and and this is taken from uh, the the name of the book that's actually called unesco its purpose and its philosophy by julian huxley and i have put that in the footnotes so here he is with this grand plan he doesn't hide it he makes it very clear in from what i read that there's a problem how do we change it and this is a global plan and today we're seeing the outworking of that because the the media on a whole is a vehicle for all kinds of um, information but it can also be used to inform the people in, that watch it and listen to it in a way that we don't or they don't even realize that there's some things coming through that aren't actually correct but you know what I'll accept it because I'm seeing it through the television or I'm seeing it on my phone or I'm hearing it on the radio. It's human beings put in their perspective on what they perceive to be the truth. Um, Julian Huxley, as I say, maps everything out in detail. I'd encourage anyone, if you can get a hold of that uh, booklet, to have a look at it and see for yourselves. But it's interesting that he pulls on all the major areas of society, art, science, education, you know, he's talking about using the institutes that are there to inform the way that people think. Uh, it's not going to be adults alone. It's going to be young adults. You know, it's going to be young uh, children, I, I would assume, who are going to be part of this whole education system who are going to think, oh, well, we're just learning about art, when in actual fact we're picking up on other things to do with art. That is actually true because it does come out later again. I know I keep saying this, it's later in the book, but it's kind of... Uh, a really strange path that leads you to the ideas of this religion and it does sound and it's presented like a religion there's just no other way of describing it because he even says at the end taking the techniques of persuasion and information and true propaganda that we have learned to apply nationally in war and deliberately bending them to the international tasks of peace if necessary, utilising them as Lenin envisaged to overcome the resistance of millions to desirable change. Yeah, to overcome the resistance of millions. So if you don't hold these beliefs, he's talking about using all these different means to change the way that you think so that you will eventually hold those beliefs. If that isn't religious, I don't know what it yeah. is. And even more, just to keep... Uh, mm saying the point that you've got here which is he said this must be a mass philosophy a mass creed and it can never be achieved without the use of the media of mass communication unesco in the press of its detailed work must never forget this enormous fact says it himself doesn't he really a lot of it is self-explanatory i don't even need to comment on it just read it 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 really says very clearly he calls it a philosophy it is a philosophy and he wants that to be a global thing yeah, and I think as well when we, when I was reading this chapter and looking at some of these characters, it's always this contention uh, or tension between um, what they have left behind as a legacy that people can attribute good things to versus then seeing the truth and some of the underbelly of why some of those elements were pushed forward yeah. in yeah. such a, a agenda that seemed like it was philanthropy and yes. elements like that. Yeah, uh, and and equally, it's, it's interesting that he was the head of UNESCO, which is only one of 17 subgroups 
of the United Nations. When you read what those subgroups are, you pretty much see that every aspect of the human experience across the globe is covered by one of those groups. Put them together, that's, it's a complete picture. The world is covered. Whether it's food, money, uh, education, whatever it is, it's a global um, entity. So that means then if he was promoting this through UNESCO and there are others that held the same beliefs, then uh, you won't have to look into some of those other areas and you begin to see the same root system flowing through it. Wow. That's this isn't a conspiracy. This is the other thing. It's not a conspiracy yeah. at all. You know, people like to throw that, those words around. It's a conspiracy theory. Uh, no, no, this is not a conspiracy. This is simply looking at what's written, reading it, and, and taking what he's telling you, simply. I think what we'll do then, Valton, is we've spoken a lot about the first two evangelists, and I want there to be enough time as well for the third one. So we'll take a pause at the moment, and then we'll come back for a part two to look at our last evangelist and to round off this chapter. So any listeners right now, thank you so much for listening, and we'll come back very shortly with part two, chapter four, The Evangelists.